Welcome, one and all, to the Film Harmonic with your hosts, Noah East and Andy Ferguson. In episode 65, we finally get a significant double feature of new films to discuss. First, we'll be diving into Tenet, the more than much anticipated new blockbuster from Christopher Nolan. That will be followed up with our attempt on a dissection of the latest Charlie Kaufman effort, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, from Netflix. Leading us into the throwback challenge to close out the show, in which we decided to honor the tragic passing of Chadwick Boseman by saddling up to a film of his sadly brief filmography that neither of us had seen before. And we went with 2014's Get On Up, directed by Tate Taylor. So Andy, we got a lot to get to. What do you say we just dig right in? I had to sleep an extra few hours just to get ready for this. Yeah, let's go. Our lead film this week was going to be the blockbuster hit of the year, regardless of when it was released and the scheduling circumstances around it. It's the newest from director Christopher Nolan, and it stars John David Washington and Robert Pattinson as government spies thrust into a mysterious world of espionage. And if you think you can explain it any better than that, then get on over here and give it a shot. Let's attempt to discuss Tenant. So, I, I, Tenant is significant for a number of reasons, um, not least of which it was both of our return to the theater. was. Uh, Simultaneously, we both went yeah. together to see this movie. Yeah. And that was the first time we'd been in a theater. What was the last, last film you saw in a theater? The Way Back, the Ben Affleck basketball movie that gotcha. people make fun of me for liking. Yes. Gotcha. <laughs> I don't, I think mine was Onward. I believe mine was was Pixar. I thought you saw The Hunt in the theater. I did, but I think I saw Onward after. Oh, I don't. I don't remember which, but I'm pretty sure it was Onward. It's my last one. So um, this is a very different film than either of those. It's a very different film than a lot of other movies. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So look, I I think we can go ahead and dispense with um, plot synopsis and all of that because I think everybody everybody who's listening to this show has already knows what it's about and knows that the, that the main discourse uh, in the film verse out there is about how confusing the film is. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's been talked about so much that I think people already have an idea of what it's about. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, there's a lot of people who I'm sure still haven't seen it because not a ton of people are going to the theater, made $20 million that's, which is significant for right now. Oh, I mean, for sure. The next closest film in the box office was 1.4 million. So, I mean, you know, (laughs) it's at least bringing more attention to the theaters um, for better or for worse. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we don't really need to get into an exhaustive, you know, kind of rundown of the plot like most of the characters do in this movie. Um, I guess it's going to be hard to run down, not just because of how convoluted it can get, but just because it felt so strange to be back in a theater and this, for this to be the first movie, because it's very much coming at you in all areas, sound design, the epicness of the scope of it. It's just, it's a, it's, it's it's something to sit through. It's 150 minutes. You know, you're used to that with a lot of Christopher Nolan movies these days. Um, but, uh, where do you start? I mean, 
I guess I have to start with where the movie starts. The opening sequence of this movie set in kind of like a... Uh, kind of like a uh, opera atmosphere in this... Yeah, it's like a symphony or yeah, something. Yeah, right. Um, is purposely very confusing, I'd say. It's like wanting you to know right away that you don't know what's going on and we're going to tell you it's okay that you don't know what's going on and don't even try to think about what's going on. Just let it sink in and just experience this movie. And I was fine with that at first. Um, we can talk about it. <laughs> uh, so uh, this movie sets John David Washington front and center for most of the movie. He's almost in every scene of this film. Yeah. He is given no name. He, he likes to call himself the protagonist. He is called the protagonist multiple times in this movie. Mm -hmm. And he kind of is there to service Nolan's puzzles, puzzle pieces. He's kind of your guide through this and the performance is left to kind of his own interpretation. It's, it feels like it's, and he's very capable. I like this actor a lot. Um, but does, he does seem kind of like Nolan says, here you go. I've got this concept and you're front and center, but I don't really have much for you to actually go off of in the script, but do your best. Maybe even like, I, I mean, I, I even heard that he, in an interview recently, he said that he had to kind of create his own backstory in his head of this care for this character. Yeah. There's not much you even know about this guy. And obviously from his comments, there wasn't much written about this guy in the actual screenplay. So you can kind of see him searching in this movie. Um, yes, he gets to wear a lot of incredible, you know, costumes as most people do in this movie. And he looks great. He's, he is a movie star. Um, that there is no question about that. Not just because he came from one of the great movie stars, but he has his own specific style and yeah. his specific kind of like way he goes about these roles so far in his career. And I like him. Um, and then you kind of see you're, you're with him for the first 15, 20, 25 minutes, almost just solely with him. Um, whether the symphony moments from the, and the symphony set piece in the beginning works for you or, uh, or I mean that I think that's where I didn't get off on the right foot with this movie. There's a, I didn't like that scene. I thought it was very in a way that Nolan, it's kind of like the opposite way. I'm like Nolan typically opens his movies and immediately draws you in, I think. And in this one, there was something off. The score was just like slightly like, what is going on here? I'm thinking, I immediately thought, well, this is surely Hans Zimmer again, but it wasn't. It's not. Hans Zimmer did not score this film. And that surprised me after I saw it because the whole time I was like, this is clearly Hans Zimmer. It's very reminiscent of his, not only his recent scores, but his recent Nolan scores. Oh, yes. I.e. Dark Reminded Knight, a lot Inception, of Dunkirk. Dunkirk. It did. Yeah. Yeah. And so... That was kind of strange, but it made a little bit of a sense because some of it just didn't work in certain sequences. Anyway, starting to ramble just about the first 20 minutes um, because it's a hard movie to talk about. When he connects in his... I don't even know if it's a mission. He's given a slight, vague kind of like description from Martin Donovan's character who shows up for literally two minutes, maybe. 
and kind of lets him know what he's doing. Basically um, tells him there's this word and it'll open some doors for you. Mm-hmm. Some of the right ones, some of the wrong ones. And he gets thrust into another world and he meets Robert Pattinson shortly after that. Um, he does have a name. His name's Neil. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of... Um, his character and I think the performance is kind of just saying, well, I'm in this world and I'm going to do it the way I do it. Kind of like what Robert Pattinson does in general, which I love about him. He did this in this, uh, in the, in the, the Netflix film, the King recently where he was in a totally different movie than everyone else. <laughs> yeah. And that, and that's really how it feels with this. He, he's operating on a different wavelength and he's in a different film than everybody else appears to be. And from an acting standpoint, he kind of saves this thing. I, I like Washington a lot in it, probably more than than it seems like you do. But Pattinson is towering over everybody else as far as performances go. The guy is just, let's face it, man. We've talked about him before many times. He's on another level than most actors. He just yeah, is. He really is. He's got everything figured out, you know, in the way he wants to do it, regardless of the script. Just, I mean, there's something about... He understands what he needs to do to excel. You know that level that Gosling was performing at like 12 years ago? Mm -hmm. That's where Pattinson is right now, where he can't miss, even if the movie isn't that great, he is just firing on all cylinders. He is. And he's, he's, listen, they might all be in a Bond movie, honestly, including him, but he's also in another movie where he kind of tries to add a little bit of comedy to. He tries to lighten it up here and there as much as he can because... The movie is kind of emotionless, you know, in a way. And he tries to be that one different kind of gear in the, in the, at least with the ensemble. And, you know, they do have good chemistry together, Washington and Pattinson. Yeah. Even when most of what they're saying is just trying to explain what's going on. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing with so much of the dialogue in the film. It's expository. It's, oh, it's, boy. it's almost entirely exposition. And, and even some of that exposition is almost whispered. It's like he's got the music blaring over it. It seems almost intentionally so that you'll, so that you don't know what's going on because it's gotta be cause, intentional, right? Cause he left, he, it looks like he left so many things open-ended. Yeah, because the sound mixing in Nolan films has never been an issue, but I think no. it's purposely a, something he does here. There are times, and I've heard people argue about this. Some people say, no, that's not a problem at all. And some people say, I can't hear certain things. And I am on that end. There are times in this movie where I'm like, what the hell was said there? Yeah, there I'm was a you. lot being said, and I did not catch that at all. And, that, and it's like, and you know what? And people are saying, well, you need to see it multiple times. Watch it again and again. But my thing is, yeah, I'm usually like that with Christopher Nolan movies. I mean, yeah, I'm immediately ready to watch a Christopher Nolan movie again. I don't know if I'm there with this movie. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind watching it again, but uh, I'll tell you, uh, one of the one of my big takeaways from the film is is that from a writing standpoint, it is so convoluted that I'm not sure how much subsequent rewatches will lend. Uh, um, any any insight really you know yeah and not only are the main characters constantly delivering exposition but then there's the very small characters like clemens posey as the scientist who's wearing a lab coat and telling you you won't understand anything you're about to hear not she's not only telling washington that she's telling everyone watching the movie yeah yeah it's clear it's it's kind of a silly scene to be honest yeah yeah it has some cool effects in it 
And uh, there are a lot of interesting practical effects in this movie. Well, le- yeah, let's talk about that because take take the writing aside, which then leads itself to maybe some, some pa- subpar acting. It looks great. Of course it does. I mean, it looks fantastic. And a lot of that is because it had a $250 million budget. Yes, Christopher Nolan could buy an entire plane to blow up in this movie. And he does. He <laughs> destroys an airport in it. And it looks um, great. And I mean, it's it's really... It's him playing with all of the of, of his toys. You know, he got to play with a lot of toys. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's lavish and and garish looking at times. And you know, there's speedboats and yachts and there's like airplanes. mountaintop scenes. It's a Bond movie so many times. It is. Yet there is no physical attraction really. There's slight physical attraction between Debicki and it's surface level. It and there's no real emotion to it. It's yeah. very strange. He is a master at the technical thing. In the we action scenes, we have talked about this. He is vi- this movie reminds me a lot of James Cameron in a lot of ways. Oh, I see that. It kind of does because this guy is at the very top of his game, mm. and I understand why he's given huge budgets for original ideas. Concept is there, but you almost think, man, could this guy just get somebody else in the writers' room as far as uh, emotional human kind of arcs? You know? Yeah, it just I don't know. Why, if given that big of a price tag, why you would choose to do something so overtly self-indulgent that is not only going to alienate some audiences, but, but I mean, uh, even like you mentioned, even the people that are in the film, many of them don't even really realize what's going on. Yeah. And that is of no fault of their own. And this has kind of always been his thing, but now he's so like at the top of the heap. He's got so much clout and power in Hollywood that he's like, left to just all of his good and bad devices. And what's funny is that I, I'm saying all of this, we've spoken about this for almost 15 minutes, but I, ultimately though, I, I really was impressed. I, I like this film, but there's a ceiling to how much I can like it because I don't understand it. I, I think given the the scheduling and, and the release and everything, uh, I mean, clearly it's it's... It's one of the most, it might be the most ambitious studio film I've ever seen. But at that same time, it's very well possible that it's the most confusing studio film I've ever seen as well. And really it it comes down to him just being so self-indulgent and just wanting to play with his fancy toys, which he gets to do. But like, man, with all the hype and everything that was around this, this could have been... I don't, I don't know. It, it is extremely cool. And the idea is so cool and watching it as confusing as it is, is really cool. It's a sight to behold. And I enjoyed it very, very much, but I don't know. I don't know how much that I was able to grasp of it. And therefore I don't know how much of it I'm going to be able to hang on to. I don't mind that I wasn't able to grasp a lot of it, but I also have never felt with a Nolan film at the end of it that I didn't really care what happened and I don't care to see it again. Like maybe ever, to be honest. Wow. I don't like this movie. Um, there are many other things I haven't talked about. I don't have to go deep into it, but Kenneth Branagh on this movie is bad. He is very bad in this movie. Like imitating a bad villain in a bad Bond movie, like bad. <laughs> Let's be honest. I mean, I don't know who could like Kenneth Branagh on this movie. Yeah. I, I, and, and I think Debicki is good with what she's given to do, but man, is this like, this is another example of a male director that just doesn't know what to do with female. And he never has. 
He never, never has. has. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, Marion Cotillard or... Ellen Page. Or, yeah, exactly. He doesn't know what to do with female characters. And this is another one where she's just, she's just a stand-in. Yeah. And, and, and the reason I forgive a lot of his other movies for those kind of misgivings is Inception, for instance, like we just talked about, has a group of actors who are, first of all, has an anchor that knows how to anchor the movie. Caprio is very good in that film. Um, and there's there was the emergence of Tom Hardy and he was fun in that movie. And there's, there's other things going on in that movie that distracted me enough. It's ideas coincided with actors handling the roles a little better, I think, than they do in this. Debicki does is unfortunate. She's so interesting. What an interesting actress. But there's something about how he handles her. There's multiple scenes where, there's even multiple, there's repeated shots of her um, kind of, um, looking back on a moment where they're fighting and throwing a glass on the ground and the whole movie, she's just like, but I need my son. Like, I, you know, like I'm getting oppressed by a male, uh, this guy. And like, she doesn't really get to do anything else. No, it's pretty paper it's unfortunate. thin. Did, uh, if, if you've ever seen the BBC series, the night manager, um, it's, it's almost the exact same character that she, that she plays in that, except her husband is played by Hugh Laurie instead of Kenneth Branagh. So better. Yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> uh, um, I've only really seen her in Widows, and I liked her a lot in that film. Yeah. Um, but it's unfortunate, and she does what she can. I, I agree. She she ultimately comes out on the on the winning side as far as her performance in this movie. Mm -hmm. uh, but the reason I'm so down on it mostly is because how the movie ends as well. I think the last set piece and the last kind of military sequence is too much too kind of confusing oh, too yeah. all over the place and i'm just thinking do i even care at this point you know that's how i thought about it and and the fact that we have to men i i can't go without mentioning aaron taylor johnson he's not oh, good God. in this film he's not good in he's it. almost as bad as brana is it's just he's not in it enough which is good yeah he's not in it nearly as much as brana but he's trying to do this accent that just is awkward and it's just by by the end of it I got to the point where by, by that, by that final big battle scene, I got to the point where I was like, I don't understand anyone's motives for why they're doing any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard to be invested. Especially uh, when they try to wrap it up in a bow at the end with this emotional scene, it, which could have paid off well, had the prior stuff before it. So that leads to my question. Have you been reading any of these like theories about the film? What, as far as like it's in, it's a part of a trilogy that's supposed to happen? No. A, as to Robert Pattinson's character is no Elizabeth Debicki's son. I see. Okay. He is Maximilian. And the, the last four <sighs> letters of Maximilian is, is Neil backwards. Oh, boy. No, I've, I've not gone deep into this. You know why? Because I don't care yeah. about this movie. Yeah. I don't care to see it again. What are you giving it? A two. Wow. It's not good. Uh, I would not recommend seeing it. So you would say that this is probably your least favorite Nolan then? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. Because you weren't a big fan of Dunkirk, but you got it. No, that. but I would be willing to revisit that movie. Yeah. And, and, and I don't dislike that movie. I dislike the score, definitely. See, I was a lot more forgiving than you. I'm giving it three and a half. Um, because it is terrific to look at. I feel like Washington is really good in it and Pattinson is phenomenal in it. There was enough to keep me hanging around, but it's just that that is the absolute ceiling I could have gone because there's there was nothing else for me to be invested in. Yeah, there's too many other things 
I agree with you on Pattinson for sure, but there's too many other things that just kept knocking it down for me. Far and away the biggest disappointment of the, of the year. Yeah, I mean, because this was the most anticipated movie of the summer for me. Considering the stakes, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a bummer. It was very much a bummer to uh, witness unfold like that for me. Yeah. Our next film this week is the third directorial effort from the long-esteemed screenwriter Charlie Kaufman. It's a film adapted from the Ian Reid novel of the same name entitled I'm Thinking of Ending Things. If you'd thought we'd only have one difficult-to-decipher film this week, well, think again. I've never read the book. Well, it's pretty new. It's from 2016. I don't think a lot of people have really... I've, you know, listened to a couple of reviews and read a couple of reviews since watching this, and none of those people had read this book. Really? I, I, which is strange, because it was a smash hit. Yeah, I don't know. Still fairly new, I guess, so... Interesting. And this is the first time I had heard of this book. Um, it is very... Also, extremely interesting to me that Charlie Kaufman would want to adapt something. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, Despite writing adaptation, yeah, yeah which uh, is not an an, adap- an adaptation, not but a, it is not entirely. inside the movie. It is yeah. yes. <laughs> uh, so this one, unlike Tenet, is um, is very capable of giving most of a synopsis. And uh, I'll take a stab. Uh, uh, Jesse Buckley is um, the character that we meet not only first, but uh, that we travel along through the eyes of in this film. She plays a young woman who uh, is in a car. With her boyfriend, and they're on their way to uh, to visit his parents um, out in rural Oklahoma, I, I assume. Yes. Um, even though it's a snowstorm, and she's going to meet his parents for the first time. They've only been dating for a few months, and as she tells you, she's thinking of breaking up with him. Um, and uh, eventually they get to the house, and um, things just whew, they start to unravel, and they really don't seem it seems as if they're not what they appear to be. Yeah. That's safe to say. Eventually they get to the house. Yes. So uh, the first time I tried to watch this movie, my girlfriend said, is this whole fucking movie going to take place in the car? (laughs) And I paused it and I said, I'll get to this alone tomorrow. Um, (laughs) This movie challenges you right away. It challenges. The fascinating thing to me is this is a Netflix movie and it's Charlie Kaufman, Netflix movie. And Never thought in I'd the see very the day. first extended sequence, it's like at least 20 to 25 minutes of sitting in a car and literally talking about mundane things. I mean, with voiceover, with mundane with, voiceover. On she's, we're in her head a lot. Most of the movie, we don't even know if we're not in her head the entire movie. And these people are already kind of bored with each other. But is she just bored with the whole thing? And that's her whole perception of it. That's kind of amazing to think about. Yeah. Um, Yes, that is a challenging sequence to, I would imagine, most of the casual Netflix viewers who stumble across this movie because it's kind of everywhere. It's in the top 10 right now, which fascinates me. It's yeah. like number seven. Well, and, and, and that's not the only like long extended oh, no. car conversation they have as well because this once they movie leave only gets more house. complicated as it goes along. Yes. Yeah. And you have to be willing to be on its level and not even to try to understand it, but just to live in it, to, to even appreciate it at all i think you probably chances are you have to already be a fan of one or more of charlie kaufman's films yeah and you have to also not be exhausted by him by now 
True. You know, I, th- all, I would say that. Yeah, yeah, you need all of those things, a perfect confluence of all of those things. Yeah, and fortunately, he doesn't pump out a lot of work. So every time he comes back, I'm so ready to take that experience on again. Yeah. And so I was on this movie's wavelength from the beginning. I, I think we were very lucky that um, this is only the second most confusing film of the week. I, yeah, maybe. I, I mean, I would argue that this one succeeds better um, in, in investing you in the people in the movie, um, even though everyone is very dark and depressing. Um, but at the same time, I, I I found myself on edge in this movie immediately and throughout. Oh, right out of the gate. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with not only Buckley's performance, which we'll get to, but um, then the way that it's narrated and the way that it's shot and the claustrophobic feeling of being in the car with them, mm-hmm. all of that adds to this extra sense of dread. There's those moments in which you you wonder, like, can Jesse Plemons actually, can he hear her inner monologue? That that starts to really get under your skin. It's uh, it, it's It gets creepy right out of the gate and then just ever so slightly, every it feels like every 15 minutes turns that dial up one notch and then 15 minutes later it'll hmm. turn it up another oh yeah um but uh yeah right out of the gate you're you you kind of know what to expect as far as as far as like atmosphere and tension you, you know yeah we do i mean i can imagine if this is your first kaufman movie and you're just casual netflix scrolling mm-hmm. and you just i want to check this out i don't think you're gonna get through it all i think you're right you do have to be someone who's already interested in his work and a fan of his work yeah. Um, this movie, yeah, when it gets to the house and you, before you even meet the parents, when you're in a it's barn sequence, that's when the thing starts taking on this horror element. I think this movie, this movie, rem- this is strange. I said that watching Tenet reminded me of watching James Cameron later in his career trying to do certain things he didn't do very well. This movie actually makes me think of Kaufman excelling in a new kind of thing. I thought of weirdly enough, this movie made think made me think of The Shining. Really, for some reason, I get that. There's there's this strange, um, kind of aging technique that goes on in this movie. It made me think of that hotel. The house made me think of the hotel in The Shining, and Nicholson living there for centuries or whatever decades and decades before. And these characters. You know, it's not giving a lot away, I don't think. We don't have to give a lot away by saying there's very bizarre sequences that have characters de-aging and aging back and forth and... Um, Changing their clothes back and forth. kind of thing that just fucks with you, you know? Um, are we in this girl's head who doesn't really have a name? She has multiple names, but never a certain name in this movie. Yeah, she goes by different names um, throughout the film, depending on who she's talking to. Mm -hmm. She has different professions depending on the time and whom she's talking to. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, and that's the first thing that starts to make you feel really uneasy because the Plemons character, that doesn't happen with. The Plemons character is maybe the most fascinating in the movie. I I think this is the best thing he's ever been given so far. Oh, absolutely. so good in this film. I, I was talking to somebody else about it earlier today because one of the, things that's so great about him in the film is that um he has Plemons has this like everyman quality that like he looks like he could be the guy in line next to you at Kroger you know what I mean yeah but that's on the surface and but still you can always tell that there's something there's gears turning there's something going on underneath and he's he 
he's like the opposite of chameleon-esque because he's he, physically he doesn't change much but he has so much range because he can do things like this that that there's something going on behind him this unknowable yeah, thing behind his something eyes funny sad it's scary about him in this movie it's something unknowable even he almost that, seems unhinged too yeah. at times and it's but still very carried together you know it's it's yeah and at times he's perceived as this a genius it's it's as if he could snap at any moment but only when he chooses to it's very it's yeah. very unsettling there are moments that he really stands out in this movie in yeah. that way yes yeah um the parents of his in this movie played by tony collette and david thewlis don't have a lot of screen time i was surprised no um, i mean really only one big scene mm -hmm. but that's it's they're a long it. it's a long scene but i think they're terrific they're good, in it. They're good. Yeah. i think they're terrific in it um, Tony Collette has made a career playing moms lately, and this is one of the she's scariest ones. She's at that yeah. age, yeah. Well, yeah, she's very awkward in the overly nice way. And, and Thewlis is a is a uh, an actor that Kaufman likes a lot, mm. and um, he gets to do the chameleon esque stuff in this. Yes, he does, um, and he's terrifying there's there's some, some awkward sexual tension between him and buckley too it's really it's strange really odd and scary this movie i would categorize as a horror film it is it is a it's, psychological <laughs> horror film through and through mm -hmm. right in the exact same vein as the shining um mm -hmm. which leads us to buckley i've always been a fan and she's not been in a lot but i've been impressed with her immediately i think she's fantastic in this movie. she's absolutely incredible in this film and this, she would be my front runner for best actress right now. Wow, that's big. This is in the same way that I was floored by Florence Pugh in Ari Aster's Midsommar. This is very much difficult role for a young actress to kind of carry a movie, even though the, the pieces are there and they're set and fantastic and a fascinating concept, but you still have to have this performance. Yeah, it's nothing without it. Because I agree. she, like you said, she carries the whole movie. Sure. She's in almost every single scene. She's excellent in film uh, it, it's it's tremendous she She's, has a I long career ahead of her i can't praise her enough She's I, amazing the, the last thing i saw her in was chernobyl and she's oh, okay. very good in that mm -hmm. but having seen that, that that doesn't prepare you for this this is an entirely different animal. Yeah, i saw wild rose that film and yeah. another film that she literally saves and carries yeah. um she's she's got something special she's excellent in this film and in that where this movie takes her and plemons oof yeah, I, wow. I, I really do want to be careful of spoilers because no, I, we don't need to talk about specifics. Um, I really want people to see this film. Yes, I absolutely love it. I love this film also. I'm I, at a four and a half on. This I'm film. at a four and a half as well. I think it's now my number one film of the year. I'd have to take a look again, but it's very close for me. I mean, where it ends up going, while it is very confusing, I spent the next hour and a half on my phone you know, researching it and, and not just the sim the dissimilarities and similarities between it and the book, but also theories and, 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 and why he chose to make certain, you know, uh, decisions. And I, I mean, I, I, I went straight down a rabbit hole with this thing. Yeah, because see, I haven't read a lot about the comparisons between the book and, and this, but, but it definitely feels like it's Kaufman's vision of it. it, it, it Especially the last 
third of the film is when he really takes over and does his own thing and diverges from it's something man and and not and you know there's a just slight things that are just like a little bit awkward enough for me to not go the full five on this because i love this movie i'm with you there Uh, unlike tenant this is an example of the the subsequent rewatches i feel like will open up a trove of secrets yeah and it's interesting because this is by far the longest film he's ever made it's two hours and 15 minutes and I never felt that. Even though there are long, uninterrupted scenes of dialogue, I enjoy the type of editing that goes on in his films. I enjoy the manic way that it's put together with the dialogue. I just do. And it didn't bother me. The, the length didn't bother me in this movie. Look, I, I think a little like Tenet, he is getting a little self-indulgent at times. And even some of the writing can be, I don't know if it's his writing or Reed's writing, it can be a little pedantic at times, but but it, it veers into that lane. But most of that is like narratively purposeful, like the like the Pauline Kael stuff and mm-hmm. and some of the, the, the poetry that she writes and stuff like that. I love uh, the forget Paris moment. Yeah, oh my God, yes. But, but so like, it does veer down those avenues a little bit, which is ultimately what kept me from giving it a five. But because some of it is so narratively purposeful, you know, you want to see um, that he's got to express why she is the way that she is and seems so different from scene to scene at times that um, I was willing to forgive that. Um, yeah. The, the dance scene, the mm-hmm. dance sequence Holy cow. It was breathtaking. Like that was one of the most beautiful scenes uh, of the year as far as films go. I know a very unexpected moment. A lot has been said of, of the ending. Um, the, the, the Plemons on stage ending. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually really liked that. I don't know why. Um, I have no issues with how any of that played out. Yeah. I, it worked for me. And as a whole, this thing worked for me, scared the shit out of me very much. Um, but I was, but I was enthralled the entire time. Listen, I, I know this movie's not for everyone. I wouldn't say like, everyone see this. You know, yeah. it's very much, I understand why I want, people would hate this movie. I totally get it. But I also am just glad that we finally got something this out there to so many people on Netflix. You know, last year we got a couple of good ones toward the end of the year. And this is like maybe the first one Netflix has given us this year that's like, yes, more of this, please. All right, we've reached break time. When we come back in 60 seconds, we'll let down our guards, get a lot less serious, and break down each of our choices for the six best mockumentaries of all time. To all of you potential drop-dead gorgeous heads out there, stick around to hear if we analyze your favorite piece of art. Welcome back to the show. Documentaries are hard to make. There's research, and waiver forms, and all sorts of journalistic ethics involved, and that stuff's no fun. 
They say that necessity is the mother of invention, and that must be why filmmakers invented the mockumentary. What a glorious dissection of the genre, and it can be used for comedic effect or in viscerally dramatic ways. And today, Andy and I will attempt to parse through both fact and fiction and bring you our lists of the six best mockumentaries <laughs> of all time. Uh, starting with you, Andy, um, let's go ahead and dig in. What's number six on your list of the best mockumentaries of all time? Let's dig in. Let's get right to it. I'm going to go with um, Popstar Never Stop Never Stopping. Yes. Um, this was number seven on my list, and I was so sad that I had to leave it off. And I was hoping that you would have it so that we could talk about it. Yeah, I rewatched it this week just to see. You know, I was like, I didn't think it was going to make the list, but oh man, it's quick. It's it's in and out in 90 minutes, and it just is pound for pound. Has a lot of laughs every few seconds. It seems like in this movie. Oh well, and I don't think that it would be fair to make a mockumentary list without at least mentioning the Lonely Island guys. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. It's hard for me to leave this off. They're the clown princes of this of this genre. They've done so many of them, you know? Yeah, and this movie brings together a ton of fun people. Oh um, my God, yeah. I mean, it's it's endless, the amount of people that get on board for this movie. It's yeah. ridiculous. I mean, there is just a couple of scenes with Bill Hader in this movie as um, <laughs> Zippy. Zippy, the, 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 the guitar tech. He's a guitar tech, <laughs> and he's a big fan of flatlining in his... In his <laughs> As a hobby. Yes. And he references the movie Flatliners, the Joel Schumacher movie Flatliners, as a direct inspiration for him wanting to flatline all the time. And there's a sequence where he's being, you know, he's flatlining, he's being revived by, of all people, Joanna Newsom, who is Andy Samberg's wife. <laughs> and she's like a goth doctor, nurse. <laughs> of course. It's a very funny film. I mean, it's essentially Lonely Island you know, but as different characters. Yeah. And that's why the songs are so much fun. There are several very good songs in this. There are yeah. a couple throwaways, but there's a man, there is the, uh, the, the, uh, bin Laden song that I like a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, and then there's the, uh, uh, the song where he's supporting, um, uh, supporting gay, gay people yeah, in gay but rights. I'm not gay. He kept saying, he wants over. to make, Sure, you know that he likes sports and hot wings, and he's not gay. <laughs> <laughs> and Pink's in that music video, and it's very funny. Oh, uh, Sarah Silverman's his manager. Well, not his manager, kind of like his publicist agent or something. Yes, she's his Tim publicist. Meadows is his manager, and he's oh, excellent in this. This is the sort of thing that Tim Meadows is great at. It's kind of like his character in Walk Hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, but not necessarily. He's just a slightly different and just as good in this. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's so much to chew on and they just don't stop. The pacing's great. There's a sequence where he gets married with seal singing and he bought party wolves and the wolves attack seal and seal has flashbacks of being attacked by wolves. That's how he got his scars on his face. <laughs> there's, there's so, so many of those like little fun bits in it, you know, that, that, that man, it's the Lonely Islanders are, are, Hmm. here's the thing that that sets it apart from others and and that sets them apart from others is they do this like very sophomoric very crude silly fucking humor but there's always at the heart of it it's always in not only in good humor but it's good natured as well like the 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 overall moral of the story here is positive 
And oh, absolutely. They yeah. always root everything in positivity. And I think that's one of the most endearing things about those guys and subsequently this film. Yeah. And in, it, I chose this one of all their projects because it is an actual theatrical length film. Some of their, some of their other ones like Seven Days in Hell and Tour de Pharmacy, Tour de Pharmacy are just yeah. kind of like not even an hour long, maybe an hour. And so I kind of don't see them as you know, feature length film. And as funny as they are, they're nowhere near as good as this. Uh, it's, this is, this was better than I even thought it would be the first time I saw it, but then it has rewatchability. So six for me. Number six for me, much like you was one that I wasn't sure was going to make this list. I mean, in fact, I didn't think it would, and it really holds up really well on a rewatch. And I was thrilled that it did. And that is behind the mask, the rise of Leslie Vernon. I, had this as definitely on your list. I thought it was going to show up. It was not going to show up. And I'll tell you what it, what it made the list in place of. And that's Man Bites Dog. Um, it does the same thing that Man Bites Dog does mm -hmm. where it's following around a serial killer who is, kills indiscriminately and, um, and is very charismatic and likable and, and charming and smart. But what I think, what I what I like better about this, the man bites dog, is it's not, it's not so mean, and and it, it its lead played by um, Nathan Basale, uh, it actually is charming and likable. Whereas the lead in Man Bites Dog, I don't actually find charming. I I think he's more just full of himself, and he's nowhere near as as likable. Um, and and the film is far less uh, um, cynical and 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 dark. And I felt like a lot of that was, in Man Bites Dog, a lot of that was just um, for shock value. And, you know, just, I felt like it had an ax to grind. This is a little more lighthearted, and I thought it was a little more clever. And that's why I, I, I really enjoy, especially that lead performance by him, but also Angela uh, Gothales. I really don't know how to pronounce her last name. Um, she's the main female in the film. Um, I really, really enjoy her in this as well. Uh, you know me, I'm not a big horror guy, but this takes a lot of those like horror tropes and explains them away and um, makes fun of them. Um, and I thought that was pretty enjoyable this time around. Now that I, now that I know a lot more about that genre. Um, but yeah, it's, it's following around a serial killer as he prepares for um, his big slaughter on the night of his supposed murder when he was a boy. He's going to come back and haunt town. And it exists in, the, in this world in which Freddy Krueger and Mike Myers and Jason Voorhees, they're all real people that did those real things. They're not fictional characters. I don't know. I, I had a lot more fun with it on a rewatch than I ever expected to. Yeah, see, this has always been one of those movies that for whatever reason you've always loved from early on when it first came out. Our group of friends watched this, seemed like, multiple times, and most of everyone loved it, like, a lot, like, culty, like, like, it's like a, one of those movies that, for whatever reason, we hold on to. Yeah. I don't like it as much, but, um, I definitely enjoy it, yeah, yeah. So I saved my, my sixth spot for that. All right. What did you have at number five, though? Uh, number five for me is, um, uh, one of the very first films in this genre and that's 1979's real life we have the same number five my friend because right. real you life got around to it it was a first time watch and i loved it i gotta tell you man he's one of my all-time favorite comic performers 
I'm Albert not, Brooks is who I'm talking I'm about. I'm not sure that he's been better than he is in this. Uh, as far as performances, yes, because he gets to do a lot in this movie. He's electric in this. Well, the way he sets it up as spearheading this project that he got a bunch of money because he's, at this point, you know, a stand-up comic and a writer for Saturday Night Live and all sorts of these things. He's Albert Brooks in this movie. He plays himself, a version of himself. He's obnoxious and arrogant and narcissistic and and he's trying to make an ultimate reality show to follow a family literally everywhere they go and inside and out of their homes and um he tries to control everything to the point where they can't even live their lives correctly (laughs) and it just gradually gets worse and worse and as a concept it's already funny and in 1979 that was pretty innovative and the way he plays this role of himself, uh, the way he's very controlling and doesn't have any empathy towards anyone's feelings at any time, is uh, I think the only other performance of his I can say I like more, is it's a very different role, is in broadcast news. Um, but he's very funny in this movie. And the writing is, I mean, he's one of the great comedy writers of all time yeah and the jokes are like you know they, they zing they do i mean they it's it's like oncoming rifle fire it's it's yeah and, and then you know a lot of people you can you can love or hate charles groden i love him and he's very good in this kind of role as the head of this family he's a very mundane kind of guy but when he gets the right role like here <laughs> he's very funny in this movie yeah he really he's is. hapless he's kind of like he can't defeat Brooks in this movie. He's kind of letting Brooks destroy his life as this movie goes along. And it's really fascinating. It's a, it's a really, like I said, kind of, uh, innovative for the genre at this time. Yeah. And I love that. Like the first half hour of the film is just them setting up like the technology and, (laughs) and here's how we're going to do it. And we're going to follow them for a year. And then they only end up following them like a month and a half before the studio shuts it down. It's the, the whole, yeah, some of the technology they introduce is hilarious, hysterical. The, the, the helmet cameras yeah. are incredible. <laughs> the way he sets it up, only to say that none of them really work, and maybe one of them works, and we have most of the ones that don't. Yeah, there's there's five working ones in the country, and we have four of those, <laughs> is what he says. Oh, man. I I'm, I love that Criterion Channel has all of his films right now as a collection uh, that he's directed and he hasn't directed very many. He kind of stopped in 2005. It's sad because he's still writing, he's still working, but he hasn't directed a movie in almost 15 years, but this started it. And I think that I might run through them all again, just because he's special, man. He's special. He really is. Yeah. All right. So that was first crossover. That was both of our number fives. What do you have at number four? Number four for me is, (laughs) I think, has to be crossover. I mean, there's no way it could not be crossover. And my fourth selection is Borat, Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit, Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I've seen this movie many times. I'm sure you've seen this movie many times. I think a lot of people have seen this movie many times because when it came out in 2006, it was like, it swept the nation. Oh, it was an absolute it phenomenon. It swept the world. Yeah. Yes. And it kind of like introduced many people to Sasha Baron Cohen, even though he had already been beloved, you know, in a small scale. Well, and even that character, he had already been doing mm-hmm. it on the Ali G show. So. But he was still just not known well enough to pull this movie off. Yeah. 
he could never do it in this way ever again. So he sh- he swung big, and boy, did this movie still work. It is an extraordinarily funny movie. This performance is one of the great performances ever comedically by anyone in any comedy. Yeah, I think you it's, know it's, it's remarkable. It's it's. <laughs> And Larry Charles was the right guy to direct this because he has this kind of like guerrilla style filmmaking that just looks documentarian and it just makes everything seem so real. It's funny because a lot of it really is. I mean, uh, yeah, most I, of the people don't know what they're participating in in this movie. <laughs> 50% of it is, is, you know, straight up real gotcha, you know, mm-hmm. stuff. And Charles does a really great job of making the other 50%, the stuff that's actually staged, still look like it's real impromptu gotcha stuff. Um, and that is not an easy thing to do. And that's no. why you're right. Larry Charles was the perfect guy to to direct this. He was. Yeah. And you got to wonder like, yeah, this was like, this was like uh, making fun of certain pockets of the, of the country during the Bush era. Yeah. What would happen if somebody of his level of genius that's not, too well known now could make a movie about in our time right, right. Now. he is with his showtime show uh uh what is america right i haven't seen any of that i'm just thinking like yeah. we don't have that guy right now though that's new newcomerish no and not we well don't. known to pull something like this off yeah this was a time capsule that's like holy shit i'm glad i got to see that in the theater when that came out yeah yeah so that's four for me we'll talk about it again yeah uh number four for me is taika waititi's what we do in the shadows I thought you'd talked, have that one on here. We've talked about it before, and uh, this was one of those films that I wanted to dislike because certain people that I don't like uh, made such a big deal about it yeah. at the time, and I was like, ugh, never mind. I'll watch it, but I'm going to hate watch it. And <laughs> within 15 minutes, I was like, oh, wait a second. This is actually pretty fun. And the more it goes along, the, the it doesn't matter that it's about vampires. It's, it is written and acted by some impossibly funny people. Um, and just between, between Waititi and Clement together, yes, this thing soars. And then, and then you get some of these other guys that, uh, that have had long New Zealand comedy careers. It's a very funny film. This thing is funnier than I ever expected it to be. And it's way funnier than it even has any right being. Um, and again, talk about a film that's, it's hard is in the right place. You know, like it's making fun of a lot of stuff, but but it really is, it's, it's about friendship. It's about, you know, the passage of time. It's, you know, uh, it's about looking out for one another and, and being who you are. It's about a, a lot of those things. Um, there's a message to, to this when you get past all the silliness, you know, and it is, I mean, it is like sharp. It's wit. a very, yeah, it has no business being this good. You are correct about that. And every time I see it, I've seen it maybe three times now. It's just like, how in the hell did they pull this off? I don't know. This one barely missed my list. Yeah, yeah. I understand. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll get to something then that didn't barely miss your list. What's number three? Are we handing out medals Bronze already? Bronze time. We're yeah. handing out medals. Wow. Here's another movie that when I first saw it a long time ago, I was like, I'm surely not going to like this, am I? I fucking hate the music in this movie. And that's This is Spinal Tap. <laughs> <laughs> um, another one that came early on and yeah. just... Came in the the best stretch of Rob Reiner's career, I would say. It's actually my number three as well. It is. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. right. So, yeah, you watched it this week. I did. Finally, it's, it's been like twenty years since I've seen it. Um, this was it, it was almost number two. 
Um, but same, same. Holy cow, man! This thing is this holds up really, really well. Did, we were recently texting about how Christopher Christopher Guest is a chameleon in his acting. Yeah, um, he's already a great writer, phenomenal comedian, an improvisationalist. But the way he's able to pull off so many different accents and so many different people from different areas of the world. Yeah, this not, is where it started right here. Not just this country, but like, but as he does it in this, I mean, mm -hmm. it, he pulls off a very convincing Northern England accent. So does Michael McKeon, really. Yeah, <laughs> which was even, actually even more surprising, yeah. honestly. Yes. But Christopher Guest has some moments here, man. He, Guest is the best part of this film. It's so good. And I think that's why he ended up getting a career doing it, you know? Yeah, he kind of just, I mean... As much as, you know, most people don't even see this as a Rob Reiner movie. You have to remind people that sometimes because it feels like a Christopher Guest movie. Exactly. But he wasn't well known enough to direct his own movie at this time. No. But Rob Reiner had that, you know. Cachet. He was already there. Yeah. But yeah, Reiner would go on to do Princess Bride and When Harry Met Sally right after this. So it was a good stretch for him. Um, Reiner is really funny in it too, actually. He actually is really funny. Yeah. yeah. I like his introduction to the film. Mm -hmm. I love his interviews with the band. I almost wish Harry Shearer had had more to, to work with here, but it really is McKeon and Guest who who take this thing and absolutely run with it. By it's, the way, we need to mention Harry Shearer is credited as a co-writer on Real Life that oh, we already discussed. So that's kind of interesting. I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. yeah that came five years before this film. That's just very interesting. It feels like it's even further back than that. Yeah, I agree. But um, yeah, Shearer doesn't get a lot to do. He's kind of wordless. He doesn't speak a lot. Um, but his, his, he has some, some, hilar some hilarious moments on stage when they're playing. He's trapped in the pod. <laughs> yeah. Does. The scene where maybe the most iconic scene is, other than this one goes to 11, is the scene where they're trying to find the stage. They're trying to get... Oh. <laughs> oh, my I mean, God. And the, the just, guy that's working on the pipes is like, no, nah, man, you go down this hallway, you take incredible. two rights. Yeah. I mean, you get people showing up. You get Billy Crystal and Bruno Kirby. Bruno playing. Kirby is the, mil the limo Kirby. driver. Yes, 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 yes. But Dana Carvey is what I meant. Dana yeah. Carvey and Billy Crystal as the servers, and Dana Carvey's a mime. One scene. One scene, very quick. Bruno Kirby's very funny talking about Sinatra in this film. Yeah. <laughs> Fran Drescher is very funny in this film. She, and she gets, she actually is in a, a yeah, handful of scenes, gets, and she's she really several funny. several scenes. Uh, one thing that, that, is great about this that we talked about already with Popstar is that the songs are actually really good. They're just really funny. Yeah. They're, they're very funny songs. Sex Farm is a funny song. Mm -hmm. I, there's there's a couple of songs that I was like, this is a, this song's actually kind of rocking. The fact you know? that they have no idea that they're bad is just the best part of the film. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, and I hate this style of music. So, so I. if I can if I can get into it and be like, well, this one's kind of a groovy tune, mm -hmm. uh, that's saying something. Yeah, yeah. There's but, real actually. They put their time and effort into the making of the songs, like Lonely Island do. Yeah. Um, and you would, that was be later kind of explored in a mighty wind and the same guys in a different kind of setting. And I, and I, th I also need to point out that it, they really look like they're playing these instruments. Like and it's, it's I very believable. They probably did. It's very believable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the guys are musically talented. Um, Harry Shearer definitely is. I know that, but, uh, man, this is, this is one of those that came, I mean, it's just, it influenced so much yeah. in this genre. It's hard not to have this on the list. I think a lot of people would, would be surprised that this isn't number one for both of yeah, well, I, I was surprised it wasn't your number one. I like two more better. So do I. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what number two is. Number two for me is directed by someone named Christopher Guest. Hmm. Never heard of him. Hmm. 
So we get to talk about him finally. And that is uh, Best in Show. That's my number two as well. Oh, Look at that. Right. We've had half of these have been crossovers. That's so interesting. Look, I didn't know you liked this. This, this was so close between this and Spinal Tap. but mm, Same. I think Best in Show gets so much out of multiple people. Oh, the whole thing. It, There's it, not a bad note in the whole cast. Levy and O'Hara and I, I guessed himself as, as the, the hound dog guy. And Amazing. I was pointing out when we were watching Spinal Tap, I pointed out to Lara and I was like, that guy, the guitarist, that's the same guy that, that played the, the hound dog guy in, Amazing. in, in Best in Show. And he's the same guy that plays the theater director in Waiting for Guffman. Like he's, Talk about chameleon-esque. Holy cow. Absolutely amazing. Guest is like, I mean, that's that's where the, the text chain came from. Is, is that yeah. this guy can can do anything. And I and I find it so funny to to note that uh that uh reports why it's widely reported that like off camera, off screen, he's very dour, very serious, does is doesn't joke around or anything. And and mm-hmm. and uh uh you that is so hard to believe it's when you watch these It's films. like his escape, these roles. Yeah, it's, to it's do something he normally wouldn't do in real life. That blows my mind. It's fascinating. He is, it's hard to, I don't think you can choose a best, funniest role in this movie. They're all equally funny. It's crazy. You get Parker Posey in this movie as a just crazy high-strung, neurotic dog owner. Uh, I mean, Her just, husband fighting constantly, <laughs> the braces. Yes, oh my God, the braces. <laughs> And then you have, I think, maybe the funniest Jane Lynch performance I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. She kind of, I mean, we all love Jane Lynch, but she plays the same role a lot later on in her career she has. Sure. This was just like, I mean, between her and uh, Coolidge, Jennifer Coolidge in this together, it's just like priceless to witness these two together. And then, of course, Michael McKeon and uh, Michael, uh, is it Hitchcock? No, Michael Hitchcock plays... Uh, Parker Posey's husband. Yeah. It is John Michael Higgins. There you go. Oh yeah. my God. They're, the two of them together. Their scenes just alone in hotel rooms and things like that are just, the way they are with their dogs is absurd and funny and the quarrels they have in their relationship. And then you have, I mean, <laughs> Catherine O'Hara, again, this is not the first time she'd be amazing in a Christopher Guest movie. And Eugene Levy together. I think this is maybe the my favorite Eugene Levy performance in a guest movie be, just because of the awkwardness he has. Like the, the the level of just kind of cowardness he has in his relationship with her and the and then the feet. I mean the feet. The feet are just genius. It's a genius thing. It leads to some funny, funny moments. Yeah, it's so funny. We just finished watching Schitt's Creek and mm-hmm. where they play a married couple in that. And uh uh between that and rewatching these guest films has really just reinvigorated my love for for both of them, but but honestly, Levy in particular. Mm, okay. Um, I I think he's he I would say he's a national treasure if he weren't Canadian. <laughs> this is uh surprising me so far. Oh, I loved it. We have the same five, three, and two. We will not have the same. Number There's no one. way we're not no. going to have the same number one. There's absolutely no way. Because you have Borat and I have uh, Christopher Guest's Waiting for Guffman. That's what I figured you would have. <laughs> if we were if we were taking bets on this, that's what I was going to guess. Yeah, um, it is not widely considered his best, but I think it is for many reasons. Um, one, because 
the sheer audacity of the guest character to con- insist that he is going to save a town, he's going to take them to Broadway, and they're going to perform the greatest musicals anyone has ever seen. And this is just, I mean, it's a podunk Missouri town that is genuinely excited about Corky mm-hmm. St. Clair Corky coming, in, coming in to put on a giant production. Um, and there's just so many genius moments of him interacting with his main actors, Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara, who believe they're Broadway stars. Destined, oh, yeah. Destined to be Broadway stars. Absolutely. Even though they're what? Travel guides? They're, uh, they're, they're travel agents that travel have never left the, left the country. Yes, never left the fucking city, really. They've <laughs> left the city the one time for that <laughs> operation. But uh, <laughs> their performance is in the uh, adaptation of Backdraft on stage. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, I, I was really blown away by Parker Posey. I love her like... scenes specifically. I mean, all all of her scenes. Her singing and dancing is hysterical, but the Dairy Queen sequences are. Yes. It's almost just like he gave her. And he said, "Just do something. Just try something here." And we're just gonna hit record and you just go. She she had it from the beginning, man. She was she was a truly talented comedic star. Yeah, she's very funny in this film. Yes, um, but this. This is Guest's show. It really is. Um, he's never been funnier, I don't think. Uh, also, Bob Balaban. Oh, my God. The way he's so mundane and just straightforward and always the serious one in Guest's movies. He's, like, bewildered by the way people are acting at all times. But you need that <laughs> yes. guy. You he's know? perfect in that role. <laughs> he's so good in it. He, you need that guy. We uh, One thing that, that stuck with me was that... Um, it's a disaster the whole way through up until when they actually do the show. Mm-hmm. The show goes so well. Mm-hmm. Like it's, they, the performances are all great. They, they, I mean, the music numbers, they hit all their marks. Like it's a really They're great, all dedicated. It was a really great performance. They did a great job. It just sucks that, uh, to let the, it's, it's sad. It sucks that Guffman wasn't actually there. It's very sad. It really it is. It is really sad. Spoiler alert. But then it gives us the, um, it gives us the, my dinner with Andre action figures bits. Oh man! And the, the I remains you, of the day lunchbox. I texted is the you. Reason this is number one on my list. <laughs> I texted you. I was like, I need to get one of those remains of the day lunchbox. Yeah, the 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 final sequence of the movie. The, it's even a credit sequence, basically. Yeah. I mean, the way that closes out is that's one of those underrated bits in the last thirty years of comedy. It's just so funny. Oh, also, I have to shout out David Cross has a moment in this movie. Yeah, really briefly, and it's so funny. Though. It is hysterical. And this is like in the heyday of the Mr. Show era. He's talking about crops. He's circles. a UFO expert. Yeah. We'll just yeah. say that. <laughs> and he's like, if you test the temperature in here inside the circle, it is always sixty-eight degrees. <laughs> um yeah, man. I just have some sort of affinity towards this. This movie just gets inside me and just eats me up and makes me laugh hysterically throughout the entire movie at all times. All right, let me make my pitch. Here's the thing. The reason I have Borat at number one is I think it's not only is it one of the greatest comedic performances by an actor of all time, I I still don't understand how this thing got got made Mm -hmm. and got finished in in the in the end result that we have you know what i mean uh, th- this should not have 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 been a success um 
the the fact that he was able to pull this off is it, it is movie magic. It's a miracle. Um, it, it never should have been, and it could, they could never do it again. No, you could not do this again. Oh no, you could and, never do it. And again. I have to believe that when they finished this and had it in the can, they probably were just blown just as blown away as all of us. How the fuck did we do this? They knew they got away with murder. Yes, yes. Because you could never do this again. Not 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 just him, but nobody else could could pull this Agreed. off again. Um, because and 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 I mean I, he proved that with Bruno that you mm -hmm. couldn't. It was, this was lightning in a bottle. You weren't going to be able to do this twice. And that's why Bruno is so bad. I love Bruno. You I'm, do? I'm on the other end. It's not it's not going to make my list obviously, but I think it's really fun. But it is. I, I mean, it pales in comparison. It's not a better movie at all, but I don't think it's a bad movie. Don't. Uh, I just, you, huh. I saw this thing in the theater three times, I think. Uh, at that time, it was the, it was the most fun I had ever had in a movie theater. I mean, I almost pissed myself laughing and it was opening night, absolutely packed house. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, and he just, he just eviscerates so many subsections of people whether they're conservative or liberal he doesn't care um and he's really holding a mirror up to society and saying like look how fucking ridiculous you guys are honestly it's, it's just look how piece insane you are much more like the people who write this off as some uh you know kind of like just raunchy crude mindless thing they don't they're not getting the point it is raunchy and it is, it is crude and you see, but mindless uh, and without a point, I would say no, absolutely no. not. If anything, it is one of the smartest comedies of the century. I agree. Not just for what it pulls off, but just what it's, what it is, what its ultimate goal is, not only what its ultimate goal is, but what it actually achieves out of it. You know, uh, I mean, uh, this really does hold a mirror up to society, whether that's ours in general, like the United States and, uh, and as a time capsule of the George Bush era, but also just society as a whole, the way we, the way we interact and, 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 and view one another, uh, the way he's treated by some of these people, you know, I, I found it really funny and interesting that the, the people that probably treat him the best of all the people that he ambushes with his camera and, and, and confuses are the, the guys on Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in Atlanta where he walks up to them and asks them to tell him, teach him how to dress. And they're like, and they're like, where are you from, man? You know, mm -hmm. and, and they, I, I think it's kind of telling that like the, the pearl clutching that a lot of the other people do, whether it's, yeah, the, whether it's. Most the, people immediately profile him. Yeah. 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 Whether it's you know the uh, how could you kind of thing with the with the dinner party and and some of the other situations that he gets himself in, uh, there's this still has a lot of positive things to say about people about you know yes th there is so much racism and, and insane uh, uh, behavior in this country but like there's still a lot of good here and that's what's that's another theme that we keep running into is like yes it's lewd and crude and and even at times for in this case mean at times because he can be very mean um but there's still this good nature at the bottom of it somewhere at the bottom of it and he's still he's still getting that story across i just for what it represents as a period in in our nation's history in a period in film history and just as a purely exuberant comedic performance that could never again be duplicated uh, this had to be number one on my list and I, I i wanted i wanted to put somebody else here but i a rewatch was very rewarding i don't blame you 
I mean, it's it's one of my ten favorite comedies of all. Time. I knew, I knew that, yeah. so I thought it would be very yeah. high on well, your list. Well, here we are then. Uh, that brings us to the uh, to the throwback challenge, and um, we decided that we were gonna. Um, we had a listener commissioned throwback challenge all set up for this week, but we wanted to really honor the memory of Chadwick Boseman and his recent passing. Um, so we pushed that one back and we decided we were going to go with a Chadwick Boseman film that neither of us had seen before. And we chose 2014's Get On Up, directed by Tate Taylor, uh, in which Boseman plays James Brown. I, I'm a pretty pretty solid-sized fan of Brown's music and um, I knew a little bit about his background, so I was pretty interested in seeing this and also to see how they handled some of some of the different aspects of his life. Um, what was your thought process going into this? Um, I appreciate James Brown. Not a big, big deep dive fan. You know, I just know this surface kind of big, you know, big hits he had. Um, certainly a gigantic presence in music history. Um, so, I mean, when this movie first came out, I didn't really have it on my radar. I didn't really care too much to see it. It didn't really do anything. It didn't get any notice. I barely remember it having a run in the theater. And then I looked it up this week and it had a $30 million budget because the help did really well before that. And it made 30 million and 89,000, which is very bizarre. <laughs> so huh. it made it back. Barely. Barely. <laughs> um, so no, not a lot of traction. Not, not a lot of people saw this. And I don't think it really had much of a kind of following after either. But now I'm sure it's getting a little bit more notice. Um, I'm sure more people are seeing it now. Uh, yeah, so I went into this kind of with very lukewarm expectations because I've seen other Tate Taylor movies. I've seen The Help, and I've seen The Girl on the Train. And you're not exactly a, like music biopic guy talk about a th especially a, a the ones that are made like this yeah that's very cookie cutter this is exactly the kind of biopic that that you're not a fan of especially like the the outline and the framing devices that they use and not just that this movie has scenes that are overly visually affecty it's weird things look fake that shouldn't necessarily look fake in this yeah. movie very glossy um even when they're trying to make scenes from different eras in his young life, it looks too well produced. I guess I'll say that. Um, it also was distracting in a way that made me think, why are they letting a very white filmmaker make this movie? I kept thinking that over and over again. <laughs> it just, there were certain lines of dialogue that I was thinking to myself, like, I can't imagine that that actor didn't think to themselves, like, is he really telling me that seriously? I, to say this? I, I thought about that many times. I thought about it not only with Bozeman, but with Viola Davis, who has an unfortunate role, honestly, in this movie. Yeah. And Octavia Talk Spencer about. does well enough with what she's given, but she's just great. And I know Viola is too, but there's something about what she's asked to do in this movie that rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. I want to say. It, it, it's, you don't take somebody like that and use them in this way, you know, no. unless you don't know what you're doing. Listen. Bozeman's very good in this movie. Wow. Is he ever? He's very good in it. I don't know if he was singing or not. I have to assume he There's wasn't. No way. Th these but, these um, felt like straight recordings. But yeah, exactly. But um, but what he's doing with the lip syncing and everything. No, he does is, a great job. He handles wow. himself very well. Really? He handles really himself well. in the young and old scenes very well. He does. Yeah, I was kind of because it starts with an old scene. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, wait, is that him? 
beneath all that makeup. And I mean, he's, he's magnetic right out of the gate. And then the young version of him is just so electric and fun. And it's just, you would love to see this movie directed by, I don't want to say, let's see who would have been somebody in this era. 2014 is still, I don't know. I mean, you have somebody like, um, Ron Howard. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. Maybe Ava DuVernay or somebody like that. She would have been great at this. Kind of this, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's kind of, even, man, the Dan Aykroyd character is miserable. Yeah, it, it stinks. It's just, there's too much of that going on of the other side. And, you know, Bozeman does a lot of heavy lifting, but there's too much that's just, the people in charge of this movie and the way it looks and the way it's written, they don't do it very much of a service. It, no. It, it constantly knocks the film down. They, they certainly do Brown's music service sure, because yes. it is showcased really really well that most of the big musical numbers are heightened uh, to the appropriate level and they're performed really really well whether it's bozeman who's like we already mentioned phenomenal but uh, uh whether it's him or even some of the supporting characters that are that are really solid in this the music is really showcased properly yes um it's just it's kind of everything else the writing especially the dialogue is so hokey and oh it, it's ugh, it's it's so saccharine. I almost felt like I was going to get a like I said cavity. It's just the yeah. overall look is just too glossy. Come on, guys, do you really have to hit all these beats? Like, I, it's not it's not a well done film. I just know that I'm not a Tate Taylor fan. I no. feel like had somebody more competent directed this, Bozeman would have got the the recognition that he actually deserved for this performance. Yeah, because this is a star on the rise. It's clear. You know, Absolutely. Well, before we, many people became to know who he was. Like, this was, you know, around the same time as 42. He's very good in both films. I mean, I would argue that Bozeman is every bit as good in this as Jamie Foxx was in Ray. And that's he, another film that I just thought, why is a white man making this movie? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but more people love that film because it is still a little better than this. This, this movie is not well made. It's unfortunate. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. It's just not a good movie. Just not. Well, that's our show for today. Remember to subscribe to the Film Harmonic on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review and a generous rating if you're so inclined. Subscribe also on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever else you happen to get your podcasts. Send your suggestions for the throwback challenge to thefilmharmonic at gmail.com. We will not have a new film for you next week, but we made sure to plan something fun to keep you engaged and entertained. We're doing a dual pick six, and we are going to decide it right now on the fly. Let's tell them about that, Andy. Yes, we're going to do something a little different. We are going to leave it to chance. Um, I, uh, each one of us have picked six years, one through six, random years for movies, and each one of us will roll the die. And whatever that lands on, one through six, we pick the year it lands on. And then next week, each one of us rank our six favorite films from that year. Yes, exactly. So Andy will give you his six favorite films of one mystery year here. And I'll give you uh, uh, my six from a totally different, but still random year. Um, uh, All of mine are, let's see, the earliest year that I have on my list is 1993. And I know you are going even further back. 1989 is my earliest, so not much further down. All right, so we'll let's see what happens. Are we ready to roll? Roll the die. All right, I'm going to roll first, and we'll find out which year I'm going to be discussing on next week's show. Here we go.
Number five. Number five. That is 1994. 1994. Fun. Excellent. Hopefully we get a chance to talk about blue chips again on this podcast. I don't know. As much as I love it, I don't know if it's going to make the sixth best of that. Year. You know, I had to mention it. I had to I, mention it. I, I'm going to try like hell to, to, yeah. to poo-poo a bunch of different stuff so I can put it at least at number six, but we'll see. I'll still talk about it. I will. All right, Andy, it's your turn to roll. Are you ready? All right, let's go. All right, roll that puppy away. Five. You've got five as well? Fives in a row, like two fives in a row, and number five for me is 2015. This dice is broken. 94 and 2015. That's a nice little mix right there. Yeah, it's it's very different mix. Well, this is going to be fun. 21 is, years gap between the two years. But this is going to be so much fun. I can't wait. Um, and then on top of that, um, not only are we going to have this fun pick six, but tell them about our throwback challenge, Andy. Yes, for our throwback challenge next week, we decided to let Charlie Kaufman dictate our choice. We will sit down with John Cassavetes' legendary but still divisive 1974 film starring Gina Rollins, A Woman Under the Influence. Cannot wait to see if we stand where the main characters in I'm Thinking of Ending Things do regarding this piece of work. So it was one of the, one of the portions of I'm Thinking of Ending Things that, uh, you know, I, I, I really appreciated, but I was a little lost um, <laughs> because I've never seen the film and I'm not super familiar with um, Pauline Kael as a film reviewer. So, um, I, I was thinking to myself, I mean, in the middle of the film, I thought to myself, wouldn't this be great as a throwback challenge? You know, I wasn't thinking of that, but it is a great idea. And, and I'm, I was familiar enough with Rollins and Cassavetes, both their dynamic. I've seen a few of their films together um, that I thought to myself when I was watching that movie, I was like, I've never seen a woman under the influence all the way through. So I would love to watch that soon. We're going to do it. This is going to be a lot of fun. And then, you know, the only reason we're doing it this way is because next week is, <laughs> whew, it is a, um, a, a, a toxic wasteland for film. You know, it's feast or famine. This yeah. week is a feast. Next week is literally a famine. The, the Irish potato famine is what we're doing. No one about. wants to release a movie on 9-11, and I understand. Yeah. Not, not, even, not even Paul Greengrass would do it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, on that note, we will see you next time. Yeah, we will, I think. Yeah. We should. On what? Uh, the film Harmonic. Oh, yeah, you're right. On the film Harmonic. Substitute.